Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. You're registered to vote in Victoria. You will have received your ballot paper last week for the local government elections, which are underway. And postal voting is common for council elections. But this year, the 24th of October poll has gone fully postal. Another feature of this year's election is the challenges candidates are facing campaigning within the health restriction rules. And uh, to speak more about how the local government election is tracking, Councillor Coral Ross joins us. She's Municipal Association of Victoria's president and it's uh, really great to have you on Triple R. Thanks for making the time, Carl. It's a pleasure, Carly. It's nice to be with you this morning. And yeah, I suppose it's uh, interesting that it's all postal. Is that expected to go smoothly? I, I guess yes, because we're quite experienced with it, aren't we? Yeah, so um, four years ago, uh, seven councils had attendance voting, but the remaining councils had postal voting. And uh, I, I suppose um, what I was most interested in when um, knowing that you're joining us this morning, Coral, is how are councillors or candidates, should I say, um, campaigning in this period? How is that going? You know, what are people able to do? And I, I suppose, you know, are we seeing some innovation with how uh, candidates are getting out, um, getting their, the word out about the election coming up? Yes, it has been quite interesting because obviously in Melbourne uh, has uh, stage four restrictions and outside Melbourne it's stage three restrictions. So it means that there can be no public meetings anywhere in the state and you can't do any door knocking. So um, you you are able to do letterbox dropping. Uh, Outside Melbourne you can distribute flyers at shopping centres or train stations, but you can't do that in Melbourne. Um, You can have billboards, um, but it really has put quite a lot lot of emphasis on uh, social media. So I'm sure that your listeners are finding lots of push ads on their various social media platforms as well. Does that make it harder, Coral, for those candidates who might not have run before or who might not have such a kind of public profile to to get some cut through um, when campaigning for this election, given they can't sort of stage those more traditional style meetings? Yes, it does. And the uh, Municipal Association of Victoria did did, um, push for the elections to be delayed until um, after restrictions um, so that it did have, uh, there was much more of a level playing field because it really does... um, help those that, or favour if you like, those that are the incumbents because they already have a platform they already have name recognition and for those that don't have that, with these current restrictions it's very difficult for them to get name recognition. Are there any other issues that, that arise, particularly if campaigning has moved on to social media that I imagine candidates in areas where there's a real diversity of the kind of social media platforms being used and maybe many different languages that they would need to be targeted Targeting people in, I mean, uh, that could benefit maybe some some new players or new candidates if they're savvy in that way. 
Yes, yes, that is true, that uh, uh, social media isn't something which everybody is familiar with. Um, it has meant as well that uh, there's been quite a lot of Zoom meetings, so a large number of community groups do uh, forums for candidates, whereas previously that might have been face-to-face. -face. That's obviously all been um, online. And the same for the candidate training. Um, the legislation did actually say that it needed to be face-to-face. Uh, but uh, that had to be moved to be online when we couldn't have face-to-face -face meetings. Yeah, living in very interesting times indeed. And it's kind of interesting that candidates are having to sort of campaign online and, and might not necessarily, you know, be able to achieve that level of, of kind of profile and, and status that they might if campaigning in, in more normal kind of traditional ways. But, but also over the past number of months for those in Melbourne who have been, you know, living with stage four restrictions, we've got a lot more familiar with our local area and a lot more familiar with some of the, um, the challenges and, and, and some of the things that could probably be improved around, um, you know, kind of roads and footpaths, for example, and, and parks and so on. Do you think there'll be a sort of focus on, on particular issues or a greater focus on some issues this time around because people have been sort of more engaged in all likelihood in their kind of five kilometre um, radius around where they live? That's a very good point, Dylan, because people have been using their uh, local neighbourhood, their local open spaces and parks and gardens quite a lot, and uh, obviously the footpaths. So we're actually seeing that in the campaigning where candidates are talking about the need to support local businesses uh, to have more open green spaces, improved bike paths and footpaths. And I think all of that is in the, in the context of uh, the current pandemic. So you're, you're spot on in there. They are they are being highlighted as issues. And, and what about um, perhaps changes in the candidates? Like, have you seen that people that may have run um, in, you know, different circumstances have pulled out or the other way around, you know, picking up on Dylan's point, people that might have become a bit passionate about their local area might be running now and might not have um, in different circumstances? We certainly heard a lot before the election was called, especially from women who were not going to be putting up their hands. And certainly that has come through that, that uh, women who were going to be standing are not standing now because of uh, their circumstances changed because of COVID-19. And we know that women in particular have been uh, most severely affected by the pandemic with losing jobs or needing to concentrate upon their families. So... <clears throat> Whilst it is that the uh, percentage of uh, female candidates has gone up um, slightly on four years ago, um, a lot of the women's groups are saying, saying to us that uh, they wonder how high a percentage of candidates would have been women had there not been this current pandemic, because so many women have said that they, will not, well, they weren't going to put their hands up. And this is an issue that you've worked sort of closely on throughout your time as a councillor and, and mayor as well, serving as national president of the Australian Local Government Women's Association and, and other groups as well. Do you imagine that sort of coming out of this election then, you know, that the gender representation in particular council areas might sort of go backwards? 
it's a real fear of all of the women's groups that that is the case. We we currently have, um, at the last election, just over 38% of uh, councillors elected were women. But there were 13 councils, or actually because of a, by, uh, a resignation, there are now 14 councils, where there's only one woman councillor. So it is what's called quite a fragile situation. Um, so it's very easy for the situation to go backwards. Currently, Victoria has the third highest percentage of female councillors. So Tasmania has the highest uh, percentage of female councillors, followed by Western Australia. So it would be very sad if the percentage of women went down because of holding an election during a pandemic. And New South Wales was due to have its elections uh, last month in September, but they delayed theirs for a year because of the pandemic. And on one hand, those of us and in my area, I can't even think how many people are running in the ward that I'm voting in. There's just It feels like there's dozens of them. But in some areas, I understand there's um, going to be uncontested elections. Uh, is that common or is that also a feature of this uh, election that there's some areas where you actually don't have a choice bar one? Well, we haven't had, we certainly didn't last year, we didn't have, uh, four years ago rather, we didn't have any failed elections. And that means when you don't have enough candidates for the positions vacant. So they were going to have to be some by-elections in two councils because they've got a failed election. We've got 34 uncontested vacancies. So some of your listeners will get a little, uh, would have received or will get a little piece of paper from the VEC saying that they don't have to vote because um, there was uh, there were enough candidates who nominated for the positions that were vacant. And that includes three metropolitan councils. So there are three councillors, um, uh, one at Cardinia, one at Knox and one at Maroondah who have been uh, re-elected unopposed or elected unopposed. Oh, well, that's an, e- and, that's an easy campaigning then. Well, there is no campaign yeah. there. And, and 30, 31 um, rural councils, uh, there also will not be uh, any campaigning at all as well. But as you said, that there are some areas where there are a large number of candidates. So Wyndham has got 86 candidates competing for 11 vacancies. Nilambic has got 79 for seven. And Bayside has got 66 for seven vacancies. So that there are those differences. But certainly um, failed elections is extremely unusual. We know in in state and federal politics there's been a lot of conversations in recent months around how to sort of advance, um, you know, virtual parliaments and that sort of thing and and have sort of virtual conferences as part of our democratic process. How have virtual council meetings worked, both, I guess, in in, um, Borundara, the the council that, that you represent, but also others as well? Have they been successful? Yes, they have. They have been very successful and uh, uh, the community has been able to speak at uh, the council meetings as well. So they have been uh, extremely successful. And from an MAV perspective, um, we've been holding um, statewide meetings um, virtually as well. And those two have had very high um, attendance ratings. There was uh, a meeting which we had uh, for officers um, last month where we had 400 attendees 
and probably if we had a face-to-face meeting, uh, we would not have had as many attending that um, in, in a face-to-face meeting. So that, ha- it ha- that has been very good. And um, Coral, you mentioned earlier in this conversation that um, the Municipal Association of Victoria had suggested postponing this election. It is, of course, going ahead and we are mm. polling now through to the 24th of October. Um, will there be a follow-up assessment on how the pandemic has affected this election? Does that come next once we've once we've gone to the polls? Oh, I'm sure that there will be um, lots of uh, reviews as to what happened. Um, what, the uh, 24th of October is a Saturday. The votes need to be returned by 6pm on the 23rd. And I will remind uh, your listeners that the 23rd is a public holiday as well. So um, please get your ballots in the, uh, in the mail uh, as soon as you can. Thanks so much for being with us and all the best too. I know that you're not contesting this election um, after 18 years in the service of Burundara Council. So all the best for your future as well. Thank you very much indeed, and I really appreciate that. Love, love my time in local government. Um, it is incredibly uh, rewarding, and it's been a huge honour and privilege. Thanks so much, um, Councillor Coral Ross, there, um, MAV president, and um, you know, done a lot, a strong advocate for women in local government, also, and uh, hopefully a bit of information there for you. And it sounds like we've got to get our skates on with regards to voting, um, if you are in one of the areas with candidates to vote for. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Last week, we got our best indication yet of how the federal government plans to steer Australia through the pandemic-induced turbulence of the next few years when it delivered its delayed federal budget. Some of the headlines include the bringing forward of Stage 2 tax cuts, a wage subsidy for young workers, and money towards new apprenticeships and traineeships. The government has been commended by some for its willingness to spend big in an attempt to jumpstart the economy, but there are also concerns about who misses out. A new book called What Happened? Next, Restructuring Australia After COVID-19 includes pieces by leading academics and policymakers offering ideas for Australia's recovery. And it feels like a more important time than ever to think seriously about the type of society we want to create coming out of the pandemic. Emma Dawson is one of the co-editors of the book. She's also executive director at the Per Capita Think Tank and regular voice on this program. And she joins us on the line. Great to have you back on Triple R, Emma. Thanks, Dylan. Good to be here. And so first up, I suppose it makes sense to get your impressions on the federal budget. How did you see what was included and and I guess what we can read into the priorities for the government going forward? Uh, Yeah, so well, the the first thing to say was I was one of those um, credible women that was very disappointed with the lack of agenda lens on the budget this year. I think uh, missing the opportunity to uh, increase funding for childcare and early, early childhood Education and care was just staggering um, that the government would would do that, uh, would not recognise that that opportunity was there, um, having seen in the pandemic the demand for more accessible and affordable childcare and knowing how important that was to getting women back to work. Um, so that was a big glaring omission for me. Um, but, you know, beyond that, I think it was a... 
Um, it was an interesting budget. It was it was certainly a, a short-term stimulus budget. They were very careful not to bake in any long-term spending, although they have, so they have baked in some long-term tax cuts, so that will be an interesting balancing act down the track. Um, and I think while they... Uh, clearly, this, the government's uncomfortable with the level of debt that it is in as a result of this recession, um, but... The interesting thing to me is that they've targeted the spending of that money that they've borrowed to, to the supply side of the economy rather than the demand side. So this is not a Keynesian response at all. Um, the Keynesian response would be to target demand, to put that money directly into households, into income support, into public infrastructure like social housing, which was another massive missed opportunity, um, and into the kinds of uh, productivity gains, social and, and physical infrastructure that were have long-term returns. Rather than do that, this government has targeted the money at business, so it's very much a supply-side um, budget, and they've been quite open about that. They see the way forward as a private sector-led recovery, not a government-led recovery. Uh, so they're sticking to their small government ideology and hoping that the some $27 billion they've targeted at business for asset write-offs will see business lift investment and start to employ people. I'm not confident that's going to happen anytime soon in any meaningful way, and I think uh, we are likely to be stuck with significantly higher unemployment than is necessary as a result of that focus. It's much more Reaganomics than Keynesian economics, if you like. Yeah, and I mean, you, there's so much in what you just said, Emma, and I think we, we've got a bit of time with you this morning that we can go through some of them. But I wonder um, your thoughts on whether we're ready for medium-term plans yet because you mentioned temporary measures and some of those include the JobKeeper and JobSeeker payments. Um, they were set up as temporary, as you, as you highlight. Uh, but are we ready to start to lock in more medium to long-term um, policies yet? We were ready before the pandemic, Kalia. I think, you know, we've talked about this in the past, that the, the economy was pretty sluggish, um, going very sluggish going into the recession before the pandemic hit. There, was, there were high levels of unemployment underemployment, um, no wage growth, no business investment, um, you know, unacceptably high numbers of people on what was then New Start now is JobSeeker uh, and many of them on that payment for extended periods of time. So uh, if, you know, the old adage is never waste a crisis, I think this government does show signs of wasting this crisis because we actually needed to see significant social and economic reform even before the pandemic hit. Um, and the need to take uh, an opportunity like this when, when, you know, debt and deficit suddenly, finally, don't matter anymore. You know, that surplus fetish has had to be abandoned because of the amount of money needed um, to restore the economy. Well, if you're going to go into a trillion dollars worth of debt, you should make sure that you're investing it in medium to long-term growth. Uh, well, that you know, the immediate stimulus is absolutely critical. You can do that in a way that sets up structural change that is long-lasting um, and, you know, making childcare more affordable is the obvious one there, but, but investing in, in repairs and building new social housing to, uh, you know, that will stimulate the construction sector, but at the same time it will address a huge problem we have with homelessness and housing affordability at the lower end of the, of the income scale. Um, you know, a number of measures around um, investing in renewable energy generation and distribution, um, creating new jobs in uh, new industries that rely on renewables rather than coal or gas. We, we didn't really see much of that at all. There was um, 
you know, a bit of a package for manufacturing, um, some apprenticeship support, which is certainly very welcome given that we're down about 140,000 apprentices over the last five years, so there'll be some catch-up there. Um, but the kind of longer and medium-term structural changes that can be done when you're spending this big uh, have been squibbed. There's just no other way to put it. I think it's, it's quite disappointing in that regard. Yeah, it, it's been noted that there are a whole range of, of hopes and assumptions built into this budget that, you know, mm. one is is that we'll get a vaccine by the end of next year and, and also that the economy will just kind of, you know, suddenly bounce back and, and grow at levels you know, not really seen for, for some time. Is there anything that you can read into the budget? I mean, you've outlined how, you know, there aren't necessarily investments in sort of long-term structural change for the economy going forward. But from the government's perspective, could you see anything that they would be pinning that hope on, on sort of, you know, achieving these levels of growth and economic activity that we haven't really seen for, for, for quite a while? Yeah, they're pinning the hope on the willingness of, of business to invest effectively, um, and that's entirely consistent. They, their view, and they've been quite clear about this, is that it needs to be a private sector-led recovery. Um, the Prime Minister has said, you know, the government doesn't create jobs, private business and individuals create jobs. Some of those assumptions in the budget, and you know, many economists have said this since last Tuesday, are heroic. Um, the idea that we will have a fully effective vaccine by the end of next year, I think, is pretty fanciful. I mean, I'm no epidemiologist, but uh, I know we haven't actually ever developed a, a, an effective vaccine against a coronavirus. If we had, we probably would be able to cure the common cold. So um, that's that's one big assumption. Even if there is a vaccine, it's unlikely to be uh, as effective as, say, you know, your standard vaccination against, you know, um, mumps or rubella or those sorts of things. And certainly will take a long time to get out to all of the people that it needs to, to effectively promote immunity. But the the growth assumptions seem to rest on business um, taking up that opportunity to write off assets and, and invest in new technologies and new infrastructures that the new um, equipment that they may need and then to start hiring again pretty quickly. I'm I'm sceptical about that. I think some bigger businesses will probably, uh, you know, use, take the opportunity to write off things and, and purchases they would have made anyway. But a lot of the jobs that have been lost are in retail and hospitality and entertainment and events, and uh, those industries have been pretty smashed. And until consumer confidence comes back, I don't think there's going to be a lot of medium, small to medium enterprises rushing to take out debt to buy assets um, in, in an environment in which their, their consumer demand is really, is really suppressed. So the government does seem to be pinning its hopes on a, a business-led recovery, uh, I think a little bit too soon. The kind of um, investment incentives for business that they've announced are actually a, a, an important part of the economic policy mix, but I think they've got the cart before the horse here. Um, I think, you know, that more direct support from the government, including keeping that rate of job seeker higher, keeping job keeper in place for certain industries that, that have been shown to be badly affected, providing support for childcare, support, providing direct government stimulus in things like social housing or building new... I mean, there's so much... ...and aged care, you know, all of this should yeah. have been done before business investment was brought on track. Yeah, yeah there's so much there. And, um, I mean, you use the word hope, and I think a lot of us do need hope at the moment. I mean, here we are still in lockdown in the midst of a 
global pandemic and the first recession in 30 years. Um, And there's just so much that governments, not just the federal government, can choose to do in response. One of the essays in in, um, the book you've edited, Emma, um, called, you know, What Happens Next? I'll let people know that the book is out. Um, really ask the question of what processes um, should be used to narrow the choices as we try and reach consensus around a way forward. And a consensus would be brilliant, wouldn't it? And I think, um, you know, can the National Cabinet play a role in this? I mean, what what can we do to ensure this is a shared recovery and we don't have um, the kind of response we did in the last week where we, we see, you know, women in particular uh, f- feeling and actually many saying have missed out on um, much of the recovery dollars? Yeah, well, the, the chapters in the early part of the book, um, so John Langmore, who was a, um, uh, an advisor to Bob Hawke in the early part of the Hawke government, later on an MP in that government, um, writes a chapter about reflecting back on the big economic summit that Hawke um, held soon after going uh, taking the Prime Ministership in 1983. A lot of the planning for this um, for the reforms that Hawke and Keating set up was done in opposition. So when they came to government, they moved very quickly. The economic summit that he held um, and personally chaired at Old Parliament House brought together business leaders, um, social services sector, the unions, um, researchers, academics, um, policy thinkers, public servants. It was a really um, national effort to kind of think about, well, OK, look, the economy's hit the skids. It's been moribund now for some time. They were also dealing with a, a very big recession uh, in the early 1980s. Um, and that was a very collaborative approach that John references in the book as a model for the kind of accord, if you like. It did lead to, to, to the, the accord or the, the accord between government and the unions had been um, agreed some time before, but it was a way of bringing the nation together and getting consensus or as, as far as possible agreement on the big changes that were needed. We need something like that now, and we have, as I said, since before the recession, um, we put this book together pretty quickly, but the ideas behind it were percolating even before the pandemic hit, uh, because, of course, we have a, a major crisis looming in the background of this pandemic, which is climate change, um, and the need to restore an economy that grows sustainably and doesn't continue to damage the environment and the climate and, and to restore the kind of equality and opportunity for Australian people that has been eroded over the last 30 years as we've seen in, uh, income and wealth inequality grow. So that kind of approach of bringing people together, I think, is what's needed. Um, but we're not seeing that. We've got you know, quite a small group of advisers to the Prime Minister. They've been hand-picked by the Prime Minister. It's all uh, a little bit less than transparent. Um, the National Cabinet, as you mentioned, has been an effective tool, I think, for managing the crisis. But how effective that can be in terms of um, driving the, the long-term vision and driving a debate and a national conversation about that, I don't know. State, state premiers have been, I think, quite effective in, in managing the service delivery that they've needed to do, with a couple of exceptions. Um, but what sort of long-term vision we need, that needs to be led by the national government, I think.
We're speaking with Emma Dawson, Executive Director at Per Capita and co-editor of a new book called What Happens Next, which is all based around uh, kind of thinking big and and thinking small as well about the the, um, post-pandemic recovery for Australia with a whole range of really interesting ideas for how we might emerge from from this pandemic and and around the type of society we want to create going forward. And and I really found your piece in this collection, Emma, interesting because often there is a focus on these sort of big ticket items items on the the green-led recovery and how we can sort of, you know, affect these quite substantial structural changes throughout our economy. But you kind of drill down on what you call smaller rather than radical proposals and and hone in on investing in the foundational economy. I wonder if you can speak to that idea and and why you felt the need to expound on this in your contribution. Yeah, thanks, Dylan. So my chapter is is called Rebuilding from the Ground Up. And it's we do have chapters in the book um, that look at that big picture, you know, cutting edge, what industry policy do we need? How do we revitalise manufacturing? How do we take advantage of renewables? We've got some great contributions from people like Roy Green and Claire O'Neill and Clinton Fernandez and others on those subjects. But my chapter, as you say, is very much focused on what, is becoming known as the foundational economy and it basically is those jobs and services that underpin our day-to-day lives and that came to the fore in this crisis as being so essential to us. So workers in supermarkets and warehouses and uh, agricultural workers picking food, delivering food, delivery drivers, but also really critically people in the care economy, so nurses, teachers, uh, early childhood educators, aged care workers, disability care workers. Um, most of the work, the most, you know, it's the biggest employment sector in the country. If you look at those jobs altogether that provide essential services, um, food, the delivery of food, the delivery of care, the delivery of social services, um, and an essential public infrastructure, that more than 40% of us work in a job that actually is in that foundational economy. They tend to be low-paid jobs. They tend to be under-recognised in terms of their value, primarily because they were originally... It's work that was originally done at at home in the domestic sphere, so it's women's work. It's reproductive rather than productive labour. And they tend to be um, increasingly insecure jobs, and we've seen this with the outbreak here in Victoria that it was spread uh, so quickly among workers that were having to work, you know, two and three shifts across two and three sites in an aged care setting or uh, in-home care workers or people that worked in, you know, in um, the security guards, for example, that have, you know, that get hired through labour hire and, and work at arm's length from their employer. So... We tend to neglect this part of the economy, but it's called foundational for a reason because it really is the foundations of our way of life. And those jobs have been undervalued and underpaid um, and exploited for a long time. And it's actually reducing our social cohesion. It reduces our national security. It reduces our ability to live a good life, um, to live a, a worthwhile and rewarding life. And, and, and so arguably, you need to think differently about that. Yeah, yeah and arguably. It's contributed, having that um, vulnerability there has contributed to the crisis that we're in, particularly in Victoria. Absolutely, Kalia, absolutely it has, because you see that, you know, those are the, even if um, the workers or the people themselves weren't directly employed in, in those jobs that were coming face-to-face with the pandemic, um, a lot of the workers that work in the foundational economy, they can't work from home. They have to go out to work. They work multiple shifts. They have zero-hours contracts. They don't know when they're going to be 
um, working from one day to the next. So they, they are not they weren't able to isolate. They weren't able to take time off. They didn't have sick pay, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that has, it's really exposed that we have. Um, I think I you know talk about effectively undermining the foundations of our way of life. You know, destabilising our economy by not recognising the value of this work. And it's work that grow is growing. You know, care work. Well, we're seeing it as one of the we're seeing it as one of the the big employers, which is really interesting. Mm. And why um, your essay seemed quite prescient to me is that um, I suppose it was almost, yeah a prediction that investment would go into targeting innovation um, to you know products and services that we didn't know we needed, um, rather than these products and services that we actually do know we need and we know that they're too stretched and we don't have enough of them in the economy. But I wanted to ask um, Emma, were I mean, were there um, other views and, and opinions and essays in this book that pe- will surprise people, do you think, um, of the voices that you've brought together into this volume? Well, we were delighted with the people we were able to get to contribute on, on very short notice. Um, I think, you know, there are, there are some uh, ALP front benches, including the Leader of the Opposition and the Shadow Treasurer, um, and I think some of them have written very thoughtful essays about um, the way forward. Jim Chalmers in particular, who's the Shadow Treasurer, has, you know, been quite explicit in, in um, questioning whether the neoliberal economic project is really delivering for everyone and that we need something different in the future. Um, and similarly, uh, Anthony Albanese, the current leader, is talking a lot about uh, the public infrastructure investment that's needed, particularly in the regions and outer suburbs. One of my favourite essays in the book is by Emma Germano, who's the um, Vice President of the Victorian Farmers Federation, and she writes about sustainable agriculture and food production, which is a really big issue facing us um, in the face of climate change and now uh, having lost a lot of those, as you can see, temporary and migrant workers and backpackers to do that work. It's really on a spotlight on the insecurity and the underpayment of those foundational workers in agriculture as well. Um, so we tried to bring together, you know, a very eclectic group of people, people like Fiona Stanley writing about um, how to look after children and invest in future generations. There's a, a fantastic chapter on public health by Rob Moody and Mike Daub and, and Tasman Soller. Um, so it's really, uh, there are a lot of ideas here, but the underlying theme is that even going into the crisis, we were facing the twin challenges of climate change and inequality, and we need to reconstruct an economy that works for everyone um, rather than, than us being sort of cogs in a machine to, to create wealth for a few people, that we reimagine the idea and reclaim the idea of, of the fair go and that everyone, you know, true economic growth and success uh, means improved living standards and it also needs to be done in a way that is sustainable um, and will allow us to move into, you know, away from the era of fossil fuel economies and into the renewable era. I mean, so often when, you know, there's a lot of great ideas out there, but they don't always translate to meaningful and, and good policy. And we can, you know, see many examples of that over the years. And, and I wonder with what's happening at the moment and, and with the budget and with the, you know, record debt and deficit that we're experiencing that has been led by a coalition government too, whether some of those old assumptions and old battle lines might not be so as significant as, as they have been in, in recent memory, or perhaps might even be, you know, reinforced as we start to 
chart a, a, a different trajectory out of the pandemic than the one we have, we have before us now? Because even with, um, you know, tax cuts tend to be mm. quite popular electorally and, and any future Labor government, for example, would, you know, perhaps look to, to winding some of those back, which would be a very hard case to prosecute. How do you see the politics of Australia's post-COVID recovery kind of, um, what kind of trajectory do you imagine that would follow? Well, I think we're at a really interesting juncture, actually, Dylan, because the, the, big, the, the big battle, the big ideological divide over the last 15 years has been over debt and deficit. You know, so can you, can you get the government, can you get the budget into surplus or not? Uh, which was always a ridiculous argument to be having because, you know, balancing the economy is much more important than balancing the budget. That's thankfully been blown out of the water by the you know the, the biggest debt we've ever had to take on. So now the focus is not so much on who can balance the budget but on who's, what are you going to do with the money that, we, that has been borrowed. And I think what we saw in last week's budget and the budget reply were two very different approaches. And it, you know let's bring some of the, the cross-part benches into this as well. The Greens as well obviously have been talking about a, a Green New Deal or a Green-led recovery. Um, Labor certainly in its budget reply and the Albany on Thursday night set out both medium and long-term visions. So, um, you know, reforming childcare, uh, investing in um, the energy grid uh, to, to make it fully capable of taking on renewables, um, some of the longer-term around manufacturing and the care economy, as opposed to the government's here's some short-term stimulus and within 12 to 18 months, we expect the economy to snap back to the way it was before. So very, the conversation now is really about, OK, we don't need to think about the debt and deficit anymore. We know we've got a lot of debt, right? But how are we going to use it? So I hope that that leads to a much more um, worthwhile and productive political debate. I suspect it's going to be more polarised in, in many ways than we've seen for a long time. Um, I'm not a fan of the terminology Green New Deal. I think it's, a, it's an American kind of import, um, the New Deal being Franklin Roosevelt's program. Um, and what we've tried to do with this book is set out a very Australian agenda. So it's rooted in Australia's history of the post-World War II reconstruction, um, the economic um, reforms of the 1980s, not consequences of which were all good, but were mainly very good at the time, um, to sort of say, well, actually, Australia has done this well. We, for a long time, were the envy of the world in terms of our economic growth and middle class stability um, and we don't need to import lessons from Europe or America or anywhere else. We we can take an Australian approach to investing in our own future. Um, I think it is time for big picture thinking uh, because yes we need to concentrate on the immediate reconstruction but the decisions we make now will really set set up the, the next 30 or 40 years of economic and social systems. So it's absolutely critical that we uh, in, take part in that conversation and yeah, make I, sure that we take advantage of opportunities. I mean, to be, to be fair, I suppose people are... Um a borrowing from international terminology to try and represent what hasn't been seen in Australia before, but which might be useful, I suppose. But I, I actually didn't want to go there with the question so much as um, to ask about the, the next budget, which we actually will see in six or seven months from yeah. now. And do you think they'll start to kind of, um, I don't know, uh, remove some of their blind spots? And and I know that the, the options are being kept open for JobKeeper and JobSeeker, for instance, the payments and the conditions around those payments um, I mean do you think as we see the washout from this recovery and if it's not if the private sector doesn't lead it in the way the government hopes that we yeah. might see an adjustment and issues and um, important sectors like childcare addressed differently come next May? 
Yeah, look, I, I do to some extent. I think uh, it's, it's inconceivable to me that, that Scott Morrison, who's a very savvy politician, he understands um, how, to read, how to read a room, as, as Catherine Murphy put it in her recent quarterly essay. So it, it's, it's, it's not... I, I don't think there's any chance he won't move on childcare at some point. I think he, he can see what a big issue that is um, and, and that there's a lot of agitation and, and uh, a lot of economic um, support for the idea as well. I don't think the ideology will shift. I think that the government will remain wanting to see a business-led recovery, but I don't think um, they cannot move on childcare. And I do also think that as they, you know, get a read on where the economy is heading at the end of the year, um, they'll well. I, I think it's also politically untenable for them to go back to the old rate of new start. So I do expect to see some increase permanently to the rate of job seeker as well. It's how far they go with those things. And they are um, job seeker and job keeper. Job seekers are a temporary measure. They'll always, um, unfortunately, be unemployed people in Australia. It's not necessary to have as many as we have, but um, job keeper will have to be phased out at some point so that you aren't, you know, um, perpetually propping up businesses that are unviable. Um, but, yeah, I think, I, I do think, I expect to see um, more support for uh, long-term unemployed people and the uh, movement on the childcare issue, um, either in the mid-year budget update at the end of the year or in May next year. But, yeah, I think fundamentally we have a real distinction now in that Labor and the Greens are the parties that believe that government should lead the way in a recovery and that there is a role for government in driving the recovery and they have said this, they still very much plan to, to go with those stage three tax cuts as well. So you can still see that, you know, the, a similar kind of trajectory is being followed, um, albeit we live in very different circumstances to what we did a year ago as well. As, but we can perhaps read into that, that there won't be any massive surprises in terms of the, the broad kind of framework of the, the budget measures going forward. Thank you, Emma. Thank you for your book um, and all the best with it. Uh, and um, I'm sure we'll catch you here on Triple R um, before the end of the year, before you sort of break for the summer. So um, Always great to talk to you, guys. Thanks heaps. Um, what's, what happens next is the book that um, Emma Dawson has co-edited with Professor Janet McCalm, and uh, it looks at reconstructing Australia um, out of COVID-19 and, um, yeah, talking there also about the recent federal budget and budget budget reply speeches and um and yeah all the best to you if you're actually facing a lot of the issues that we raised this morning i mean there are people thinking policy at the moment um let's see what comes out of this budget triple ah This year's annual Stephen Murray Smith Memorial Lecture, a highlight of the State Library of Victoria's public events calendar, will be delivered by journalist and author Eric Jensen. And the lecture commemorates the contributions made by Murray Smith, who was founding editor of Overland magazine. And uh, the lecture promotes research and debate in the broad areas of his interest and influence. And Eric Jensen, who is uh, founding editor of the Saturday paper and currently editor-in-chief of Swartz Media, uh, has uh, titled his lecture, The Man with no face and it's really great to have you on the line there Eric welcome to Triple R. 
Thanks so much for having me. It's really great and to have you here. And I understand the lecture um, um, that you've written comes from your ongoing regret of not publishing a photograph that had a profound effect on you. Can you tell us um, about asylum seeker Hamid Shamshirapal? Sure. Hamid um, was an asylum seeker held on Manus Island. Um, he was an Iranian asylum seeker and he'd been recognised as a refugee, but because he was a boat arrival, not settled in Australia. He, uh, three years ago, committed suicide on Manus Island. And the last picture ever taken of him showed him um, in the jungle after he had committed suicide. And at the time, it was it was one of the most kind of um, profound and upsetting images I think I've ever seen of the policies of detention enacted by successive governments in Australia. And I had really struggled with whether or not it was something that the Saturday paper should should run. And ultimately, um, Ahmed's family found the image too distressing for it to run. But the further that I've got from... Um, from first seeing that image, that the more I believe that one of the reasons this country is able to do the things that it does in pursuit, essentially, of comfort is because we never see the faces of the people damaged by our politics. And when we look at the way in which journalism contributes to change in other countries, it's because of the proximity to individuals that that change comes and it's it's because of a willingness to see and engage with people actually damaged by systems of government and in Australia we go to extraordinary efforts to um, keep us from seeing those people we incarcerate in our prisons those people that we incarcerate offshore um, you know the whole system of offshore detention is about making people invisible um, and I think in, until we properly engage with and see and understand that damage and produce some kind of empathy that we lack, we will continue to have a system of government that harms people the way that ours does. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting kind of consideration that, that you're talking about and, and the thought process that you went through in whether or not to publish that image because, you know, journalists every day, um, uh, you know, often would be balancing these considerations of, of ethics and, and what's kind of in the public interest and what the public needs to, to hear about and needs to see um, and perhaps what they don't. So, I mean, how has that kind of impacted on, on your role going forward and, and how you balance those considerations, particularly when there might be, you know, family members involved that, that, that might prefer that, that a particular image was not published, for example? I mean, it's, it's always going to be incredibly difficult. And, and when a huge trauma like this happens, the um, concerns of a family will always have to be central to decisions that are made. Um, but I think, you know, the the thing that the image that I keep reflecting on after this is the image of Emmett Till in an open casket after mm. being killed by racists in Mississippi in uh, in the fifties in America. His mother chose for him to be buried in an open casket and chose for that image to run in Jet magazine and then elsewhere, and um, was an instrumental figure in catalyzing changes in civil rights in the U.S. Um, and. I just feel as if we we have um, systems that so protect us in Australia from what it is we do to other people um, that 
something radical needs to happen to shift our perspective. Yeah, and I, I mean, and suicide is um, also an area in reporting that warrants massive consideration. I want to give out the lifeline right now because we know it's important that people have somewhere to go when these discussions take place, and that number is 131114. Um, was it how Hamad died that really influenced you too in the decisions you made at the time, and also how does that bear on you now when thinking, it, thinking about it later? Yeah, I mean, reporting around suicide is is a very difficult area. There is really strong research to say that causation um, is is influenced by reporting means of suicide, reporting reporting location. Um, certainly, I, I spoke to two psychiatrists uh, while I was making the decision about running the image, and both of them uh, warned that it would would have a deteriorous impact on people who might see that image. At the same time, I think if you have a system that completely takes from a person their hope and their humanity and is constructed in a way to deprive them of of everything to the point at which they choose to end their life, I, I don't think in those systems what we're talking about really is suicide. I think when when everything has been taken from you and a system is functioning as it was intended to function, what we're seeing is not suicide. It's, it's essentially state-sanctioned murder. And this concept of, of the Australian faceless, which you address in... The, in, in your speech, which we must be said we haven't seen the speech um, at this stage, in what ways do you feel that that particular phenomenon is, is supported through whether the media landscape or the way that politics is, is conducted in this country? In what ways are we sort of prevented from seeing the faces of, of people who are harmed by particular government policies and, and regimes? If you just look at our legal system... Um we increasingly in Australia um, see suppression orders being granted in, in court cases. Uh, justice in this country is conducted with greater secrecy than almost any other developed nation. Um, once people are imprisoned in Australia, it is incredibly difficult for journalists to speak to them. Journalists are routinely taken off call lists. It's, um, there, there is no assumption that you will be able to speak to the incarcerated, whereas in other countries with, you know, um, similar impulses towards incarceration like the US, there is at least a capacity for, for the public to speak to and journalists to speak to people who are incarcerated. Um, but the, big, the biggest one really for me is, is offshore detention. You know, the, the whole artifice of offshore detention was constructed to keep people from accessing Australia's laws. It was kind of legal trick um, uh, envisaged by Howard. But it had the other useful effect of making people we were keeping in offshore detention wholly invisible. It was impossible to get visas to visit Nauru for a long time. It was impossible to get to Manus Island without facing deportation um, as a journalist for a long time. Um, the mobile phone ban that, that is being pursued at the moment by Peter Dutton, um, he says is about, uh, you know, keeping child abuse material out of detention centres. In reality, it is about keeping these people out of the news. It is about making it impossible for journalists to speak to people whose entire lives are being destroyed um, simply because we feel that we would be less comfortable if we allowed them to be citizens in our, in our country. 
Um, the lecture page uh, where people can register to view your lecture, Eric, on the State Library website invites people to post questions ahead of the lecture, which is a really interesting format. But one question that's there at the moment that stood out to me was one around why it's important to see people's faces to appreciate them. What, what would you answer to that? Because it is quite an interesting and, I suppose, important one because we can't always see people's faces either. Mm. And, and I think it's, that's a really interesting question. It's one that um, other people have also struggled with. Teju Cole wrote an essay last year addressing that very question. Why do we need to see the way in which people are brutalised to feel something for them? Is it not enough just to know that they've been brutalised? And I wish it were enough to know that they'd been brutalised. You know, I, I'm a writer. I, I believe absolutely in the power of words. And yet you can write down a story and it have no impact. And this is true of the Dondale um, situation in the Northern Territory. Everything in that Four Corners report had already been reported in print. It was only in the public being forced to see the images of what a spithood actually was, what, what this kind of deprivation actually was for there to be changed, for there to be a Royal Commission, for laws to be shifted, many of which have now been reversed, unfortunately. But it, it is, there, is, there is something in the human imagination that refuses to properly picture what it is we are doing until an image itself stands in front of us. And, and that's been true in, in numerous um, civil rights actions across, across various countries. And, and I think it's really true here. And I think um, because of uh, the sort of, you know, nature of control in Australia. Um, we really are a country that very rarely has to confront what it is we have done to produce the country that we have. Um, you know, it's, what is it now, 40 or 50 years since Danner gave his royal lectures about the Australian silence that came to Indigenous dispossession. Um, that silence remains, but there are now greater and other silences um, around the kind of absences we make for anyone that discomfort us, be they the poor, be they people struggling with mental illness, or be they people incarcerated. Yeah, it's a really interesting point that the Great Australian Silence is sort of where my mind went when I sort of first read about the, the subject of your lecture. But the role of journalism, I mean, you know, traditionally speaking, is to, um, you know, perhaps ex expose wrongdoing or expose things that have been done that, that uh, you know, perhaps behind closed doors that are in the public interest that we should know about. And in the case of visual representations with, you know, Dylan Voller, for example, in the Northern Territory and, and the video of George Floyd as well, there was a huge outpouring of, of anger and distress that came after those images and, and footage was broadcast. But what do you see of the role of journalism in kind of interpreting or providing a, a means of navigating and, and using that anger towards productive means? I think that's a really good question. I, I think um, journalism's relationship with anger is incredibly complex and yet at the same time, hugely reductive, I think. Um, you know, we, we believe that a journalist who is angry has failed in some way, that, that to be angry is to lose this sacred objectivity. Um, increasingly, I believe that you know, anger is a tool by which to kind of hone lucidity or audacity or memory. It's a... It's a it's a tool by which to achieve change. And the very reason we judge anger in journalism is because if journalism is angry and if journalism makes people angry, 
too much change might come. Um, and so I am increasingly of the view that we, we shouldn't be afraid of anger and we shouldn't judge it. We should allow it to drive journalism and we should also allow journalism to be centrally concerned with the production of anger. Um, and I think, I think part of that is about empathy and about creating empathy, but it's also about being willing to actually say how terrible things are. I think, I think journalism sometimes worries that to, to be too critical is to make the world too complex. And really, I think that's exactly what journalism should be doing. Wow, what a really interesting um, point you make there. Eric Jensen's our guest, um, journalist and author, and also delivering a lecture tomorrow night, um, the Stephen Murray Smith Memorial Lecture as part of the State Library of Victoria. And I suppose just further to that, um, what you just said there, Eric, you posted um, about the lecture saying it's partly about journalism and partly about the damage caused by avoiding anger. What is that damage that you refer to? Well, avoiding anger allows us to judge people who are angry and people who are angry are usually people telling us that the world needs to be different and you know I think so much in Australian politics is about the maintenance of comfort comfort is the thing that we are promised by our politicians and it is the thing in programs like offshore detention that we deny to other people and we are desperately afraid of losing that comfort and one thing that confronts us and confronts comfort is the idea of anger and so we and so we are caused to judge it um you know i my, myself i i've spent much of my life afraid of anger um I, I, i've spent much of my life trying to um suppress it in myself and 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 to protect myself from it in others and the more I reflect on why I do that, the more I realize, you know, we judge anger to protect ourselves, not just from the angry person, to protect ourselves from the things that we've already done, from the things that have already benefited us. And until we start to actually embrace and engage with anger, we'll, we'll keep standing in the way of hearing what it is people need um, for people to live equal lives, really. It's a really interesting point, and, and uh, as you're talking, I'm kind of thinking about the role of empathy, which you mentioned earlier too. Because if we look at the way that the media landscape has, you know, changed over even the past few decades, and the rise of commentary and opinion and so on, and um, you know, going back further, shock jocks and, and that sort of thing, there is certainly, you know, we can see and, and um, detect anger across the media landscape in particular forms, um, and it's not always in the way that sort of you're describing where there's kind of an empathetic underpinning to anger, that we're angry for a reason because we're concerned about how other people are faring in our society and, and potentially the Australian government's culpability in their distress and trauma as well. So I wonder if, if, if empathy is kind of one of the core underpinnings of how anger can be harnessed in, in a useful and, and generative kind of a way. Look, I think, I think absolutely. I think, um, you know, Something Sontag said about um, sympathy, which is that, you know, sympathy essentially can be a passport to innocence. That if, if we feel empathetic or sim sympathetic, then we feel that we've done enough. But sympathy coupled with anger is, is something that can produce change. Um, what you make about shot jocks, I think, is, is especially telling in this country. Certain people are allowed to be angry. Um, they're, they're allowed to be angry, not because they're challenging the status quo, but because they're cementing it. 
you know, um, you, you can get on breakfast radio and be angry about Australia changing mm. only if your anger is directed to making the majority of people more comfortable. But anger is not allowed if it's about saying there are people who are not comfortable who would like to be. Well, I think people will enjoy the lecture tomorrow night, um, Eric, and um, thank you for spending time on Triple R with us this morning. I know we've um, kept you longer than we said we would, so um, I appreciate you spending um, these 20 minutes with us. And um, if you want to uh, watch the Stephen Murray Smith Memorial Lecture uh, presented this year by Eric Jensen, um, you can do that by registering the State Library Victoria website. It's 6 o'clock tomorrow night, and that's the 13th of October, and it's free to book via Eventbrite and... You can also post a question in the lead-up as well, which I think is a really good feature. Thanks again um, for being with us on Triple R. Thanks so much. And I want to give out the Lifeline number again, um, 131114. And um, I actually meant to um, provide the um, let you know that we we're going to be discussing suicide in this uh, conversation, so apologies I didn't do that right at the top, that number 131114. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.